Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Mike Savage, som er professor i sociologi ved London School of Economics og nærmest en legende inden for klasseforskningen i Storbritannien. Hello. Hello, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you so much for taking your time. It's wonderful to get the chance to talk to you. That's fine. Looking forward to it. Mike Savage har i adskillige årtier med inspiration fra Karl Marx, Pierre Bourdieu og senest også Thomas Piketty undersøgt og afdækket det britiske klassesamfund og klassesamfund rundt omkring i verden. Også her i Skandinavien. Han kombinerer sociologiske teorier med meget omfattende empiriske studier, så vi faktisk er et sted, hvor teori og praksis hænger sammen. I hvert fald hænger teori og virkeligheden sammen. Mike Savage fik et forbløffende folkeligt gennembrud i 2015, da han lavede bogen Social Class in the 21st Century. Bogen var resultat af en stor klasseundersøgelse, han havde lavet for BBC. Og dengang der havde det heddet sig i årtier, at klassesamfundet var dødt. Nu var vi alle sammen blevet individualister. Klasseteorien var færdig, fordi folk tilhørte ikke social klasse længere. De tilhørte forskellige livsstilsgrupper eller forskellige segmenter, og man kunne slet ikke forstå samfundet ud fra klasseanalysen. Men da Savage lavede den store klasseanalyse for BBC, blev folk overvældende optaget af den. Der var en service i undersøgelsen, hvor man kunne gå ind og plotte sine egne data ind i en matrix og finde ud af, hvor man selv var henne i klassesystemet. Og det førte til, at over 8 millioner, det vil sige over en fjerdedel af den voksne britiske befolkning, gik ind og fandt deres egen plads i det britiske klassesystem. Det er ifølge Mike Savage helt grundlæggende for klasse, at der er ikke så mange, der bryder sig om at tænke på sig selv som nogen, der er defineret en boks. Der er ikke så mange, der bryder om at tænke på sig selv som en del af en klasse og som en del af nogle interesser og et verdenssyn, som hersker i den pågældende klasse. Men for alle andre kan de sagtens se klassesystemet. Det vil sige, at vi orienterer os efter klassesystemet, når vi møder andre mennesker, og vi groft sagt suspenderer klasseanalysen, når det handler om os selv. Så vi tror hver især, at vi er det eneste individ, mens alle de andre hører hjemme i klassesamfundet. Og det er ikke bare en, menneske, en fejl i den menneskelige psyke, ifølge Mike Savage. Det er faktisk en del af klassesamfundets psykologi, og det man engang ville kalde for ideologi. Mike Savage har senest udgivet en bog, som kom i 2021, der hedder The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past. Det er den bog, som er udgangspunktet for den samtale, jeg har med Mike Savage, der følger lige om lidt. Tesen i den bog... Den er, at efter et halvt århundrede, midt i det 20. århundrede, hvor vi troede på fremskridt, fremskridt i lighed, fremskridt i frihed, fremskridt i tryghed, fremskridt i socialstaten, fremskridt i den måde, vi behandlede hinanden på, så er vi pludselig slået tilbage til et samfund, hvor der er nogle få, som er meget rige. Og dem, der er meget rige, de har også meget stor politisk magt. Og hvor man kan sige, at hele det demokratiske projekt, handler om at adskille økonomisk og politisk magt. Vi kunne godt tolerere økonomisk ulighed, men ikke politisk ulighed. Og pludselig er vi ifølge Mike Savage i nogle samfund, der minder om samfundene for 100 år siden, hvor de økonomiske overklasser også sætter deres vilje igennem politisk. Og han siger, at her er der faktisk ikke så stor forskel på lande, som vi ellers regner for meget forskellige. Der er ikke så stor forskel her på USA og Kina. Der er en, en oligarkisk overklasse, som har meget stor indflydelse på den politik, der bliver ført, og som bliver stærkt privilegeret af den. Der er ikke så stor forskel på 
oligarkerne i Nord og oligarkerne i det, vi med en lidt tavlig forkortelse kalder for det globale syd, de tilhører alle sammen den globale overklasse, som har fået indrettet en verdensorden, der privilegerer dem. Så det er det, han mener, at den historie, vi troede, vi var på vej væk fra, er vendt tilbage og er ubehageligt til stede i vores samfund i dag. Han tror også på, at kræfterne imod det er meget stærke. Det kommer vi til til sidst i samtalen. Men først skal vi et smut tilbage i historien, høre Mike Savage's egen historie. Så tager vi historien gennem de sidste 40 års udvikling af ulighed, og så ender vi fremme ved fronterne i dag, hvor der både er en imperialisme, der slår tilbage, men også noget helt nyt progressivt. God fornøjelse. Thank you so much for taking your time. When when I look at at the the books you've written and and your and your generation, uh, of course I'm curious how how you got into the how you got this uh, interest in in social class and the working class and and, yeah. and capitalism originally. Yes, well, I mean, I think it came really from my university education. I came from a you know a middle class, low middle class family. My father was a middle ranking journalist. Um, had me to university. He wasn't particularly political. But when I went to university in the late 70s, it was still a very left-wing political culture. And I was very influenced by debates about Marxism. And this very famous uh, Marxist historian, E.P. Thompson, Edward Thompson, his great book on the making of the English working class, it just makes me aware of the idea that progressive change doesn't come from the, our, our leaders, you know, passing it down. It comes from struggles from below. And I think it's a very powerful way of understanding history. And it's something which has stayed with me ever since. There were there was for many years this sense also here in Denmark, uh, this sense that class was a dead thing. That even even I think not only social democrats, even further left wing parties will say, well, people don't think of themselves as working class voters. So the, the working class is, is is too fragmented, and not everyone aspires to 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 become middle class. But in in there's a very interesting point in the end of social class in the 21st century where you say that what people say about class and on one hand and how they enact and perform class in their everyday lives, on the other hand, are very different. I thought that was so interesting because it kind of reflected an intuition I had for 30 years or something. Could you explain this difference? Yes, look, I mean, so when I was at university in the, in the late 70s, that was the last period of history, really, which in British history, where you saw those traditional working class politics and In a way, the miners' strike, the big miners' strike we had in 1984-85, was the last blast of that heroic moment of trade union struggles. And as you say, many people thought, well, that's the end of class. You know, class as we understood it, in terms of the organised industrial working class with trade union power, is a thing of the past. They will now become, you know, individualistic or neoliberal or whatever. I never really believed in that. Um, but I did think that class was being remade. And in the way, this is what I pick up on in my more recent books. Um, and the big lesson, I think, from the social class of the 21st century book, which came out of this BBC class survey, this massive class survey we did, um, is that uh, the BBC really pushed the project, okay, and they certainly made a big effort to promote their findings. And it caused a huge interest in the, BBC, in, in the UK. You know, they, the BBC launched this online calculator to work out which class you're in. Seven or eight million people did that calculator. You know, a, a quarter of the adult population in Britain did it. Perhaps not a quarter, a fifth. Um, so people are obsessed by class, even today. 
But what they don't like is the is the traditional labels of class. So and they don't like being in a class themselves. So people people talk about class because they're aware society is very unequal and we become more unequal. And it's something you can't really avoid as we go about everyday life. But the idea of yourself being in the class is something which people try and avoid because it's it makes it look as if we're in little boxes, you know. So I think that unpacking that ambivalence of class and trying to explore how class has changed is a really key thing. There's a point in Claire Ainsley, you know, she wrote this book about about the new working class where that that was uh, quite quite devastating to many leftists here because she maps out this this new working class and and says that well, in order to govern especially in the UK, you must have an alliance with with the working class. You must speak to them. And they have a sense of justice and they're more liberal morally than I would expect in according to her book. But then she says, well, but they're not interested in class warfare, that there's no appetite for class warfare. How do you see that? Again, I think it depends on how you think about class warfare and what that involves. And uh, it's a big theme in my recent writing is um, understanding class, not just in terms of, you know, your position uh, uh, as an employee, important that that is. Many people, but many people don't have secure jobs, and they, you know, uh, they are you know, studying or they're doing domestic care work or working part time. But we all have a relationship to forms of wealth, you know. And if we understand the working class as people who are in precarious life situations, that is a very large grouping, and they have a lot in common. So I think it's about how we recast notions of class away from old models, which is about you know what job do you do, and broaden out the definition. I think you mentioned that that there was a strong Marxist tendency in the university when you were studying, and we're also familiar with this wonderful book by Thompson, uh, which is a a great read as well. But of course, another one who's very influential for you is is Pierre Bourdieu. And I think he was for a lot of people because you managed to stay loyal to some of the intuitions of the Marxist analysis. You put capital in the center, but then you, you can look at different classes from there. What did Pierre Bourdieu mean to you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, my initial thinking came very much from the Marxist tradition and Gramsci and Thompson. But again, but then what became very clear in the 1980s in Britain and in many other countries too, is that we were seeing increasing class polarisation structurally, we're seeing growing inequality, tax cuts for the rich and all that. And yet the working class did not seem to be um, involved in massive protests against it. So there's a mismatch between... How people thought, how people thought about class, if you like, class consciousness, and the class structure, and that I think is where Pierre Bourdieu is really important because he makes the really important point that um, such is the power of uh, forms of domination that people who are in the most disadvantaged situations often are dominated and that they're, they're not aware of their class position. Really important book uh, by Beverly Skeggs, feminist sociologist in the UK, influenced by Bourdieu, made exactly this point that young working class girls in the English Midlands um, who had a lot had a lot to gain by identifying as being working class and disadvantaged didn't do that because such was the hold of you know dominant values and the existing system. So Bourdieu gives you a way of understanding why the lack of overt class consciousness is actually a sign of the real power of class because it actually stamps itself on our minds and our ways of thinking. You, you have a very interesting criticism of Bourdieu as well in, in your new book, The, the Return of, of Inequality. And it's yeah. something that people stumble upon a lot with, with Bourdieu is, is this concept of cultural capital. 
because it's obvious, I think, that at a certain time, in especially French history, that, that a certain kind of cultural capital that was not connected to economic class capital, that having this sense of aesthetics, having this refined taste, understanding different kinds of, of music and philosophy was a capital form in itself, and it gave you in certain closed fields a dominant position. But people today would say, well, Bourdieu, that's just stupid because cultural capital isn't that important anymore. I mean, who gets any power from, from, from having read James Joyce or understanding the metaphor in Shakespeare's sonnets? So how should we understand cultural capital today? Yeah, look, I mean, um, for many years, really, certainly between about 1995 and 2010, I was very, very concerned with Bourdieu's arguments about cultural capital and did lots of work trying to map out forms of cultural capital in the UK. And you're absolutely right. Bourdieu himself has this notion about cultural capital as being tied up with what he calls the Kantian aesthetic, very highbrow, you know, forms of culture. That's still there, okay, and you can find that particularly among the older generation. So you should not write that off. Um, it's, it's so significant, but we also very clearly found evidence that younger people, younger, well-educated people, were really seeing that that form of cultural capital as being a bit old-fashioned, boring, staid, uninteresting, and they were distancing themselves from it. Often along the lines of it was elitist or it's about white, you know, white men and all this. Um, and as you say, one argument is what you say that means the, co- the concept itself doesn't mean anything. But I think that's far too simplistic because what is happening, I think, is uh, a form of Im- what we call emerging cultural capital. And here I should say I've, I've worked with, a, with um, a sociologist who works at Aalborg University, Annie Queer, uh, yeah. and we did some work on reflecting upon studies in Denmark and Scandinavia and in the UK. And we, and we've, we have this common argument that the younger, well-educated, middle-class, if you like, professionals uh, would have a form of cultural capital which was much more focused around venerating and valuing contemporary culture, keep fit, using the internet, showing, you know, what Bordier calls a form of mastery, mastery of the codes, but it's still a form of cultural capital, you know, even though it distances itself from the older forms of elitism, it still carries with it a sense of, you know, we, are, we know what's what, we are the masters of the genre, we, are, we, we, we know what counts as cultural good taste. So I think the cultural capital has changed, but it has not disappeared. Something that's very difficult here, I think, is to see what is the relation in society as a whole between the value of cultural capital uh, compared to economic capital. Uh, Because you would also see today a lot of people saying, well, it's very important that my kids, they get grades from the best universities. But not just in the cultural capital sense, but also in the sense of saying, well, this will give them a high, yeah. this will give them a better job and this will give them a higher pay. In the end, that for Bourdieu, they are distinct cultural and economic uh, capital. And often, the, you know, the, those, the cultural other classes would say they don't like bestsellers, they don't like mainstream. And today, it seems more that cultural capital is also a way of enhancing your economic capital. Yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, and this is one of the big arguments I make in my book, The Return of Inequality, that, um, you know, Bourdieu was writing at a time in the 1960s, 1970s, when economic inequality was relative, relatively low. In fact, it was probably at the lowest it's ever been for at least for several centuries, but probably from, you know, probably for most of recorded history, if we're honest. Um, this was the time when there was, you know, the high taxation in many countries had reduced the income and the wealth of the top earners. 
Now, in that situation where you've got relatively subdued economic inequality, it's quite logical to think that cultural capital becomes more important because, you know, economic capital is subdued. But what we have seen in the last 30, 40 years, to a greater or lesser extent, and obviously Denmark remains a much less unequal society than UK or indeed, you know, most countries in the world. But even, even in Denmark, you've seen some increase of inequality. And that means... And this is, a, this is something which I've really been thinking about in the last few years, having been inspired by people like Piketty and the work of The Economist, is that we have to recognise that cultural capital has kind of lost ground to economic capital. Um, and that we are seeing a kind of resurgence of forms of economic capital and wealth. What that means is that not that cultural capital has disappeared in importance, but it has become more subsidiary. And I think it's become subsidiary but it's now more of a, of a screening device in terms of who can get access to top universities, top positions, which will allow them to become part of the economic elite. So, as you say, you know, rather than there being a, a simple juxtaposition or contrast between economic and cultural capital, I think now cultural capital works much more in the service of economic capital. To go directly to the theme of your of your new book, the return of latest book, I should say, the the return of, of of inequality. I was thinking it must almost have followed your life that you grew up in the seventies, where we thought that equality would be increasing and social justice would be something that was. I know you had rough la- later period of the seventies in in the UK, but you must have seen almost firsthand this enormous turn of history and this rise of, of inequality that had accelerated over the last. 40 years. How did you experience it yourself? Yeah, no, you, you're completely right. I mean, um, the 70s was a strange decade in the UK. I mean, we were, it was characterised by a great sense of stagnation, lots of industrial conflict. But there was a sense in which we all shared, you know, um, some some notion of a, of a national, you know, a, a national politics. And there was a sense about certain values around social social welfare, the welfare state. You know, free healthcare, um, which which was widely, you know, widely widely supported, and then Thatcher was elected in 1979. We had a Conservative government between 1979 and 1990, and that fundamentally shattered those values and said, "We've got to make Britain more competitive, uh, and, and unless we get the economy prospering, everything else will fall by the wayside." It was a very big shift in the way we thought about what mattered and, and what our values should be. Um, and of course, what that led to, particularly with the tax cuts which were introduced in the 80s, is a massive growth of economic inequality. To give an example of how it, you know how it played out in my experience, you know, I went I went to the University of York, um, which is what, in the north of England. It's not it's not you know it's not Oxford and Cambridge, but there was no sense. But well, I should also say when I went to university, um, I was about about 10% of student of. Um, teenagers went to university at that point in time. We all got a maintenance grant, so we had our fees paid for, and we got a healthy living allowance to pay our way. So we didn't have to work at university. And it didn't matter whether you went to Oxford and Cambridge, or York, or you know lesser lesser known university. You all treated the same, and there was no sense about there being a hierarchy of universities. Okay, Oxford and Cambridge were famous, but we didn't really see ourselves as being any worse or any lower grade than those, than those students. As we have experienced life in academia in the last 40 years, you've seen increasing hierarchy and inequality amongst UK universities. And that testifies to the way that growing growing stratification is taking place across all sectors of the public sector as well as the private sector. And I do, um, again, I think it's 
this is another big theme in my book, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there still was possible to have that notion of we are, we are on some kind of progressive journey. We can expect the future to be better than the, than the present. Okay, there were issues, certainly the nuclear bomb, the Cold War, definitely. But there was a feeling we can expect life to improve, you know. Um, from the position of 2023, I think that's really difficult now to maintain that view. We are in a much more pessimistic situation. Uh, we know that with respect to climate change and all the dangers to the environment. And you know, what I think is that we have to recognise that inequality is the second biggest challenge, along with climate change and the environment. The challenge of inequality is, is the same. It is systemic. Um, it needs fundamental uh, political will to challenge it. But whereas with respect to climate change, there's a high degree of consensus about you know, how to tackle it. Okay, there are people like Donald Trump who don't go along with it, but on the whole, there's a strong buy-in about what the issues are and how we tackle it. We haven't got there. We haven't got that degree of consensus yet around inequality. Some people doesn't don't think it's a big problem to fix. Even it's a it's a minor issue, or not or even not an issue at all. I think we have to do much more work to really pull out the systemic nature of inequality and why we have to tackle it if we are going to think about a sustainable world. So as you can see, my, my, own, my own thinking has got much more pessimistic, sadly, <laughs> in the recent years. The inequality you describe in, in, in your book is, a, is a quite heavily inspired by the an analysis of Thomas Piketty. Uh, and it's not, when I was growing up, I was thinking inequality, those who have high incomes, those who have low incomes, and those who have very high incomes, they can buy a very big house and make some money mon money from that. But but primarily, I would think I would think in terms of, uh, of of income. This is a lot about wealth, and 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 wealth is is assets and and um, and and stocks. Could, could you describe this this inequality that we've seen, the nature of it, and how it's composed? Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a big theme in my book, and because we we know we've always sort of been aware of the difference between income inequality and wealth inequality, but Piketty really rams it home. Um, though interestingly, I think, his book, Capital in the 21st Century, does it very well, but his more recent work, he's sort of slightly moved away from the central focus upon wealth, which I think is a shame. And what I try and do in, my, in this book is to really ram home why it matters, sociologically as well as economically. And I think that the, the way Piketty talks about it is, is the rise of capital income ratios. So in most rich nations, in fact, you know, most nations of any kind, you are seeing the stock of capital increase. People, the value of people's assets, if you add them all together, whether the assets are, you know, people's property or stocks and shares, savings, financial instruments, these have been growing very fast. You know, we live in an economy which values assets and has, is based upon the trading of assets. That's increased a great deal, much faster than levels of income have increased. Indeed, um, in many countries, uh, income is fairly stagnant. Uh, and indeed, we've also seen in many countries um, the share of income, which comes from people's capital assets, in other words, forms of rent, is increasing compared to income from your employment. Um, and these are really important shifts because, for a number of reasons. One of, them, one of them is that insofar as we can defend inequality from a liberal point of view, we do it on the basis of some kind of meritocratic argument. That is to say, well, it's fair enough. That, you know, great chief executives should be paid so much because they work desperately hard, they're really well qualified and all that. Well, you know, we we can we can contest that. You know, I don't think the the ratio of 400 
you know, the, the ratio of uh, the pay of chief executives in the US to the average worker in their companies is 400 to 1. I don't think it's easy to defend that ratio, even using that logic. But nonetheless, a, a ratio of, say, 7 to 1 or even 10 to 1 might be defendable. But once you get to think about wealth inequality, you can't really use that meritocratic justification because most wealth inequality is not derived from people's hard work or, or skills. It's derived from the fact that you've got a big stock of asset and by no skill of your own, usually, it's parked in a place which generates high returns. Uh, I think Piketty has this nice anecdote about, um, I think it's Piketty, Bill Gates, you know, the chief executive of Microsoft, who has earned more money since he stopped being chief executive of Microsoft because he suddenly had the assets in the right place and they boomed. So I think taking that argument is very serious in terms of uh, the underpinning, which is widely used to justify inequality, begins to collapse. And you can't really use that meritocratic defence. And we have to recognise it's unfair. Why should people with wealth just get huge returns on that wealth by virtue of it obtaining some kind of uh, you know, rewards? Okay, so that's one aspect, it's the critic of meritocracy. But another theme I try and pull out in the book is about the relationship to time and history, which is, again, if you take this point about income, you know, income is earned, you know, on the basis of work we do, you know, you may, you may be paid on the basis of hourly pay or weekly pay or monthly pay, but basically it's a, it's a return on work you are doing in the fairly short term. So it's, it's transactional in a, in a fairly short term period. Wealth is not like that. Wealth is built up and accumulated over many, many years. It's often passed down between generations. And therefore, if wealth is becoming a bigger uh, set of assets in societies, that really means that the forces from the past are actually becoming increasingly significant. So whereas we like to think of you know, ourselves as being increasingly living in society dominated by new technology and AI and all this sort of stuff, yeah, okay, that's happening. But we've also got these accumulation of forces from the past. And we kind of recognise this, don't we? All the debates about the significance of slavery and imperialism and the fact that they still matter, even though we are living in a decolonised world. That is a really, really important. And I think it makes us think about the significance of, of long-term historical forces in exactly the same way, actually, as climate change issues. We were aware of the significance of carbon deposits over many, many, many years. So thinking long term is, I think, really important. And that's what wealth inequality makes us do. It's interesting here because you have two Piketty's. There's the Piketty of capital in the 21st century. And yeah. his his sense of history is rather pessimistic. And I wrote a book in 2019 based on that. So, so And I bought into that. But then you have the Piketty of capital and ideology who has yes. a longer view, to a 200-year view. And now all of a sudden, our friend, he turns to a progressive sense of, of history. And he says, well, in the long run, we are progressive still, and ideas do matter. Whereas in the first analysis, you know, there was never an argument about wealth. Yes. It was There was no democratic debate saying, well, wealth should be rewarded a lot more, like we have with taxes and income. There was a right-wing new conservative agenda that was winning the argument at the time. Never about the other one. But you picked the first Piketty. Uh, why do you pick the first one of Capital in the 21st century over the second? Yeah, look, I, you're absolutely right. Piketty changes his mind. Um, I, so I like what he puts out in the first volume of the Capital in the 21st century, 
but they are greater than G, you know, what he calls the fundamental law of capitalism. Because it is a quite, I mean, okay, it's been, it's been criticised by economists and I don't want to get into the econometrics of it, of it. but I like that sense about, well, I like it, it's like the wrong way, I dislike it. I dislike <laughs> the arguments, <laughs> but I find they're very powerful arguments, which is that there is this kind of perverse effect that wealth will just generate more and more inequality unless you really, really make a big uh, attempt to try and address that. In other words, we're not in a kind of uh, equilibrium where things just balance backwards and forwards, but really the situation is going to deteriorate unless you really challenge it. I think his, his more recent work in capital ideology, as you say, is a bit more contingent. It's to do with, well, we know we can shift things if we choose to. There's no inherent tendency for wealth inequality to worsen. And I think that's a, yeah, okay, I, I agree. I agree with the need for politics, you know. I, I think we all got to recognise that. Um, but I think we need to do that on the basis of, unless, a bit, again, like climate change, uh, we need to address it in a very fundamental structural way. Um, and I think, you know, he, and he sort of recognises this too in the new book when he talks about the need for participatory socialism. But I would just, I would just really um, underline the idea that wealth inequality is going to deteriorate year on year unless we really try and tackle it particularly. We can't leave it to, to hang out uh, or to hang, up, to hang for too much longer. You mentioned it just briefly before, <clears throat> uh, but there's a very interesting and I think convincing point in your book that this rise of, of inequality is a kind of return of history and you say even return of empire, uh, yeah. which of course is a fundamental attack on the liberal progressive worldview I grew up with in the 70s, where I thought yes. that was not just economically, but also morally a thing of, of the past. How, how do you connect the the return of of uh, Inequality and the return of empire. Yeah, the, it's just something which really occurred to me as I was writing the book, um, and so it's, it's trying to pursue this logic about what does it mean for the past to return. You know, what what are the kind of examples you'd give of the way in which past forces um, have become significant? And, and it strikes me, you know, the social sciences can be very complacent, um, and I speak as an academic so, social scientist, but we can. I mean, social sciences flourished in the years after the Second World War. Uh, those were years in which nation states became the kind of assumed unit of, of society, if you like, and the collapse of the communist order in the late 80s seemed to underscore the idea that really we're living in a world now of different nation states and they were organised in slightly different ways, but they all operate by the same principles. That's an enormous historical complacency which social scientists had. Nation states are incredibly temporary and short-term phenomenon, only really been in existence in a strong way for less than a century. Most of human history has been tied up with empires of various kinds. Um, and it's a kind of thought experiment, which is to say, well, okay, if, if we are seeing the return of history, the return of inequality, does this mean that imperial forms of governance and power are also uh, strengthening again? And, you know, uh, what if, if we think about what's happening in the world around us, you know, look at the war in Ukraine, look at what's happening in China, look at, look at you know, the Make America Great regime under Donald Trump. I mean, these and look at look of course uh, Brexit. What did the Brexit phenomenon indicate in the UK? These are all forms of imperial um, projects, if you like, being relaunched. I would I would see I would I would say um, with that imperial project and with the with the kind of significance of empires is I think the role of elites because elite, uh, uh, imperial projects are driven by strongly. Um, and powerfully inscribed elites of various kinds, uh, which again we're seeing across many parts of the world. 
that doesn't mean, and this is something, this is a point I talk about in the book, we, uh, I think we do have to kind of defend a version of the nation state. You know, if we look at those societies in the world, which do appear to be less, less, less unequal and do appear to have stronger versions of, of social welfare and a commitment to some kind of social contract, you know, making sure that everyone to a greater or lesser extent has some voice and some role in society. The country, the places in the world which have been better able to organize themselves in these ways are those which do have a kind of national formation. I mean, Denmark, I would say, is, is one example of that. Scandinavian nations, another obviously strong exemplars. So we are in a world in which, you know, it's not as if the future is um, inscribed. We, we have a political battle on our hands, try and defend versions of what I call sustainable nationalism, not the imperial, aggressive, you know, um, world-empowering em- form, but a form of nationalism which defend principles of equity, of working among in a community of nations where you're working alongside other nations, not in competition with them. We've got to recognise that that form of nationalism is, is in retreat, but it's still very powerful. And you still see it strongly, not only in Europe, in parts of Europe, but you see it in parts of South America, some African nations. And so we've got it all to play for, but I think we, we have to really recognise that, that we are at a difficult turning point in the world, in world affairs. And, and if we look back, you in the beginning of the book, you mentioned uh, the, the protest against the 1% in New York, which in in many ways was very, very, very interesting because it was something written by Joe Stieglitz in Variety that inspired them. And for a long time, I thought personally that they ha- they were right, but they lost. So all the anger that went to the Trump campaign and the right. And then later, I found out that this was for many, many people, the beginning of the Bernie Sanders movement. There was a there was a formation of a young generation of, of 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 socialists, and that leads me to the next question, which is, how impatient should we be with this process of having intellectual ideas analysis that shows this new kind of of of, of inequality social movement bringing it forward, and then political change? Because you could say, on one hand, it's been ten years since Piketty's first book came out, almost. And nothing fundamentally changed. Everyone said, well, he's right, but nothing fundamentally changed. On the other hand, you could say, well, actually, we have a kind of intellectual awakening about inequality. We have political leaders talking about it. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think we can read it both both ways. Uh, but I think going back to, you know, um, Occupy Wall Street, that's a very interesting case, isn't it, of how quite abstract and technically advanced work by economists, which helped create the language of 1% and all that, that did actually feed through into politics. So you know, there is a simple critique of much social science. It is too abstract and no one reads it and doesn't really get out into the social movement world. But of course it does. And that's why I think thinking about, that's why academic work on inequality matters. In terms of what's happened in the last 10 years, I mean, certainly uh, it's a, it's been very gloomy. The rise of populism, to use that phrase, you know, with inverted commas around it. The, you know, the, the way in which um, right-wing elites have managed to seize upon popular discontent and turn it against so-called cultural elites has been very powerful. Um, but I do think, as you mentioned the Bernie Sanders campaign, but I also do think we are now seeing a growth of uh, concern about how to, to address issues of tax justice in a way we haven't really seen in, in, in the last 20, 30 years. So, for instance, in many countries, the idea of raising taxes 
which has usually been held to be something you just can't do in front of a democratic electorate because they will just vote you out. But now you are beginning to see parties saying, well, actually, we should be raising taxes. And the debate upon wealth taxes, which, you know, Piketty really introduced that 10 years ago, as you say, you know, that is now causing much more political interest than was the case even five years ago. It was raised in the American presidential campaign. It will be raised, I'm pretty confident, in the next uh, UK election campaign. And so my own view is we are we are beginning to see a shift towards thinking about taxation as a way in which we can address social injustice. And now I'm not saying it's straightforward. I'm not saying it's going to happen quickly, but I do think we are we are on the cusp of a wave in a more progressive direction. And as you say, the groundwork for that has been done by a lot of economists and campaigners. And so I, I'm I'm optimistic about the future prospects, but we have a lot of work to do. You know, we have to win people's hearts and minds. I think many people still think that there's nothing wrong with wealth inequality because you know why shouldn't people enjoy the benefits of uh, of you know their wealth? And people often think of wealth is to do with you know having a nice house and what's wrong with having a nice house. So I think we have to do much more to try and explain to people why wealth inequality is actually very divisive and unfair. But that, that, those those debates are being had now, and so I think we are pushing the agenda forward. You you're very I think you're very generous in your book to some of the anti-racist movement, the feminist movement, because there are other people who grew up with Marxism who would say, well, the young people today are just. Uh, speaking about identity politics, they're not really into the the economic structures of society. They're addressing racism and, and they're addressing uh, gender inequality. And if you look at the Me Too movement, it's not it's not about the inequality of power between the man and the woman. It's just that if the man in power doesn't violate the rights of the women who's subordinated to him, that's one way of seeing it. But you have a, a different reading of, of, of these movement that's interesting, this aspect of inequality. Yes, and, that, and that's very important to me too, because I think that, as you say, there's been all sorts of political divisions between the, what should we focus upon, identity politics, or Nancy Fraser talks about this in terms of the, of the tensions between the politics of redistribution and recognition. Uh, and all sorts of debates about well, uh, the relationship between these things. I think that's very, very divisive. And I think we've got to find a way of, of reconciling these different concerns without making one dominant, you know, without collapsing them all into, say, the purely economic. Because undoubtedly, you know, there's more to it than economic, economic distributions. There's absolutely the case that racism and sectism have their own um, foundational principles, foundational forces, which you cannot reduce to some kind of economic logic. So I do try and think about you know, how do we how do we reconcile these alternative or co- competing political principles, and that's where I think um, the argument kind of goes that the, the 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 increase of economic inequality is generating these uh, powerful elite forces, various kinds, economic elites who are much more detached from average everyday people than used to be the case. And those those elites are also um, uh, enhancing forms of sexism and racism. You know, most elites. I mean, I mean, currently involved in various projects trying to measure this in more detail. But you know, m- most of the wealthy elites, 80-90% of them are men. The vast majority uh, are white. 
uh, we are doing i've been doing this research in the uk with my colleagues alvin advani and andy summers and david berger looking at uk uh non-dom that is to say people who uh get this tax break they claim that they are living there so they're living in the uk they're paying uk taxes but they're claiming their permanent home is elsewhere in the world that allows them to get exemption from paying tax on their overseas assets um and we've been working out you know who these kind of people are and just uh, um we can't be absolutely sure because we don't have exact measures of, of race ethnicity but uh, inferring from the kind of areas in the world which these non-doms come from yeah the vast majority are, are from white are from white nations so the people who are, are supremely wealthy in the uk are going to be predominantly white and predominantly male so we should not really be i think different you know trying to say oh the, this you know, race matters more than class these all think together particularly in terms of the way they crystallize their top and when you see people like boris johnson in the uk or donald trump in the us or berlusconi in brazil i mean they embody forms of class class and elitism but also sexism and racism they all come together so i think we do need to find a way of, of reconciling these differences and uh looking recognizing the intersections between these forces there's a and leninist uh credo in in the end uh, what is to be done of the book and, and one thing that's central is uh, the nation state as the frame in which to act uh and then yeah. then you then there's the the wealth tax which you distinguish from the inheritance tax, which I think is very, very helpful for the left. Uh, but but the, there's also, um, you say there are, you try to find a new radicalism uh, that, that is not against something, I think you call it accelerationism. So it's a word I haven't yes. never never seen in, in English yes. before. Uh, can you can you explain about this difference between the radicalism and the, the, then this other accelerated position? Yeah, so that I was here, I was going back to E.P. Thompson, you know, the Marxist historian who wrote this book on the, and he was trying to discover the kind of, you know, the origins of working class radicalism and the way in which they struggled for social welfare and democratic rights. And uh, he's looking to the periods in the first part of the 19th century for his examples. The point about the politics then, and, and this is the period in which working class politics became powerful, became a key force in British society and led to various kinds of socialist and labour movements was this was this was really uh, began as a politics against corruption against the elites looking after each other doing favors for each other um and i think therefore recognizing how corruption is a is an endemic feature of um contemporary societies and making that an issue which is not which is seen to be a a a progressive issue is very important too so it's kind of getting us to think about how we learn from those from those early 19th century forebears and not getting too enmeshed in, in a kind of differentiation between kind of liberal positions versus socialist positions. To go back to this, you know, my relationship to Marxism, you know, but I've always been analytically very convinced by, by by the Marxist argument, you know, about you know history of society, history of class struggle and all that. I've never really bought the Leninist argument, which was you know, we can let the Revolutionary Party lead us to salvation. That was always highly elitist. And and now, and I think uh, we've got to make sure that the, that kind of um, appeal for some kind of elitist vanguard is 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 consigned to uh, the past because it has led us into all sorts of problems with uh, the Soviets and communist experience. So how do we rethink 
how do we how do we take the alter, an alternative form of Marxism? Um, and I think we, the best way to do that is to, is to try and more fully link Marxist politics to a kind of democratic liberal perspective. This is often not usually not this is usually not done because people often see this as alternatives. But I think there is a powerful, vital need about for us to try and do that, and that's what I try and sketch out at the end of the book. Well, one one last question: If if you you so you've been working with these analyses for three or four decades, and mm. and and your researcher, you you speak of of the left as a we, so you also think of yourself as part of some some kind of mm. of, uh, of 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 larger we. Uh, and I think for most of the time, that counts for myself at least, that I've been convinced that the left was right. Sometimes the, the, there were some stupid theories. Sometimes there were some analysis that was too easy. But 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 we've been losing a lot over the last uh, three, three or four decades. And looking at climate change, that was we were right but lost it. Looking at this kind of inequality that cannot even be defended from a liberal point of view because it's against the entire work ethic and how we bring up our children we were right again but are there anything you say these were the mistakes that were made by the left intellectuals these are the lessons learned of three or four decades of being wrong and yet losing all the time yes and uh, as you say i mean i've always identified with the left um but i i sometimes think the left and again here i'm going to go back to Gramsci. you know how so that the left has to try and do is win hegemony you know it's not enough us to sit in our ivory towers and diagnose the problems of capitalism and say, oh, how awful it all is. And some of my book is written in a sense of frustration that the left is, is very good at diagnosing, you know, all sorts of problems and, you know, why why we should be doing something. But you have to win people's hearts and minds. This is, this is Gramsci's argument about we need to win the common sense of people. And my and, that, and to do that involves compromise. It involves recognizing that people coming from different positions from, from you, and they may not be positions you always agree with. But you've got to try and think about how do you win those hearts and minds. Which is why I think you know exploring what progressive aspects of the liberal tradition or the radical tradition can be linked to a kind of socialist politics is important, rather than trying to find some kind of purist, um, avant-garde position which can satisfy you as having the right interpretation of Karl Marx or whoever it is Gramsci. That's the kind of that's the um, aim of my book is to try and encourage those conversations where we, we recognize alliances we can make rather than you know lines of purity. Well, that's definitely an inspiration to us because we've been trying to we've been trying <laughs> to advance some of the same some of the same positions over the last three or four decades. At least it's a good time to be a, a social scientist and it's a good time to be a to be a newspaper. We both know that we're relevant and yeah, you've helped us a lot. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Det var min samtale med Mike Savage, og bogen, som vi talte mest om, hedder The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past. Hvis man gerne vil høre mere information, og hvis man gerne vil tilgå det gennem ørerne, så det ikke er noget, man læser, men noget, man lytter til, så kan man altid forkæle sig selv ved at gå ind på butik.information.dk Derinde tegne et prøveabonnement. Den første måned er gratis, og så kan man downloade vores app, og der er over en times oplæste artikler hver eneste dag. Og så kan man jo prøve en måneds tid at gå og lytte til det, vi laver, og tænke, om det er noget, man har lyst til at stifte et forpligtende forhold til. Jeg kan kun anbefale det. Jeg har hørt mange, der siger, at det havde de aldrig troet skulle blive noget for dem. Så startede det med, at de går og lytter til det, pludselig begyndte de at læse det, og så har de en progressiv kammerat for livet, som de kalder for dagbladet information. I næste uge, 
der skal vi tale med en anden gigant, en anden, som har fyldt meget i de sidste 40 års socialforskning, filosofi og tænkning på venstrefløjen, nemlig den forhandværende leder af Frankfurterskolen, Axel Honnet, der netop har udgivet en ny bog, der hedder Der Arbejdende Souverän, som handler om demokrati på arbejdspladsen. Den her udsendelse var klippet og sat sammen og produceret af vores gode kammerat, Mads Adam Wiener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for nu. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.